In the Bible, darkness is a metaphor for suffering due to sin. It's not only a metaphor for that in the Bible, but in the Bible, that's how darkness is often used, as a metaphor for suffering due to sin. We know that suffering often is the result of things that happen to us, things that we don't have control over, like a string of tornadoes ripping through the South. And I was reading the account, there was one, at one particular uh, factory, there were like 110 employees there. And as of this morning, I think they had accounted for 40 of them. You know, the, the words to describe that, is, it's darkness. The pain and the suffering that's caused. Or maybe it's a sickness where you go to the doctor and the doctor says, this is what the test result says. And it's physical pain and hurt. Some of us are going through that right now. There's darkness there. Of course, sometimes the darkness is caused by the way other people treat us. I mean, in other states, not so much in New Jersey, because we have it, you know, we have it pretty good here, but you know, people, people at our workplace, kids in school, people in our neighborhood, even friends and family sometimes, they can do things that hurt us. It's darkness. My friend John Newton knew a thing or two about darkness. John Newton was a pastor in England, but remember before he was a pastor in England in the 1800s, uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, he was a slave ship captain. Um, He knew a thing or two about darkness, about what it meant to experience suffering and even what it meant to cause suffering. You know, it's not just darkness, though, that's caused by circumstances outside of us. Darkness also is a result of circumstances inside of us. My friend Newton knew that. He wrote a poem. This is what he said. He said, when I turn my eyes within, all is dark and vain and wild, filled with unbelief and sin. Can I deem myself a child? In a moment of sober reflection here, maybe... After struggling with a particular sin, temptation, despair, Newton looks inside and he says, I'm looking inside and I don't see it. I see darkness. I think it's important this morning as we come to a passage that deals with darkness, that we resist the temptation to deny the darkness. So we don't want to pretend that hurt isn't there. Sometimes there's pressure to do that, isn't there? And you come into a, a church gathering, and here we are, we're celebrating, you know, together. We're singing about the birth of Jesus. We're singing about the gospel. We're celebrating baptism. And I hope somebody got a good picture of Lucille, your smile this morning, because that was worth the whole thing. I mean, that, like, there it is, right? There's this, there's this joy that's there. And we're going to talk about that joy. But, but really, actually, the, the key to that genuine, true, biblical joy is not to deny that we're having hard times. Sometimes there's pressure to come in and just pretend like everything's okay when it's not okay. To pretend like we're not hurting when we are hurting. Can I just encourage you this morning? That is a bad idea. We want to gather, but as we gather, listen, I just, you know, here's the deal. Nobody's watching online except my mom, so here's the deal, okay? <laughs> like, it's just us, okay? And, and we, we struggle. I struggle. You struggle. So it's okay that we can admit that, right? Because there is darkness. 
Sin has broken this world. It happens to us and it happens inside of us. And in, I, in the context of Isaiah, last week we looked at Isaiah 7. And remember that in this neighborhood in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, this is like 7, I'll put a date on it, like 737 B.C., okay? Like, so this is 700 plus years before Jesus was born, okay? So Isaiah's job was to, uh, at this moment in, the, in, his, in his ministry, was to confront the king of the southern kingdom. His name was Ahaz, and he was not a good king. He was really young at this point, but he, he wasn't a good king. He wasn't going to follow the Lord. And God sent the prophet Isaiah to go and confront him. And remember last week, you know, in Isaiah 7, God graciously offers him a sign. We should never demand or ask God for signs, but if God offers a sign, you should take it, right? And so Ahaz pretends he's super spiritual. He's like, oh, I could never, I could never ask the Lord. And, you know, Isaiah's like, okay, well, forget that. God's going to give you a sign whether you want it or not. And so he talks, he confronts Ahaz about wearying the Lord with his unbelief. And then the sign is going to be that this, this young woman is going to give birth to this son. And before the son is even old enough to discern right and wrong, all the things that uh, Ahaz is afraid of, God's going to deal with those through, through Assyria. He's going he's to solve that issue. Now, of course, that promised son was really uh, the initial fulfillment of what later would be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, that a virgin did conceive and give birth to a son. And so, you know, we have that context here. Well, in chapter 8 of Isaiah, he goes on to confront the unbelief of the people. Again, he's, he's refusing to allow uh, the people of Judah especially to sit in their unbelief. He's saying, I'm not going to just stand by and watch my generation walk down this road. So he confronts their unbelief. He confronts their refusal to trust in God. They would rather go to, in chapter 8, um, mediums and spiritualists and have their palms read. They would rather trust in military alliances. They would rather trust in money and, and relational connections rather than trust in the Lord. And so he confronts that. And it's very interesting. I just want to get a running start into chapter 9 with the last verse of chapter 8 this morning, chapter 8, verse 22, talking to the people who will, again, the people who have refused to believe. And he says, they will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. Listen, I know this is supposed to be a jolly time of year, but I also know that many of us come this morning dealing with significant doses of darkness. And this message in chapter 9 is a message that acknowledges the reality of that struggle. But it also, and crucially, right, it's a message of hope that says the darkness isn't the last word. Watch chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, yes, they looked and all they could see was darkness and gloom, but nevertheless... The gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Okay, let's pause right there. Uh, you know what you're thinking? I know what you're thinking. This is a great time for a map, Pastor Ryan. Honestly, we should really get a map up there. So let's do it. On the off chance that you don't remember where Zebulun and Naphtali are, okay? So I'm just taking a chance because I love you. Okay, here's the deal. So here's, here's, this is the northern part of Israel. Okay, this is the Sea of Galilee right here. So here we got zoomed in. There's the Sea of Galilee. This, these are the tribal allotments, the tribal zip codes in the northern part of the kingdom. Here's the tribe of Naphtali, and here's the tribe of Zebulun. Okay, these two tribes. These tribes, it says, had experienced darkness. The specific reference here is to the fact that in 734, in a three-year campaign, 734, 733, 732, Tiglath-Pileser III, the king of Assyria, came marching through Galilee with his Assyrian uh, 
soldiers, this massive Assyrian army, and they destroyed that area, the tri- that tribal area. They, they just wiped it out. It wasn't the first time Galilee had been a site for major warfare, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. So, but nonetheless, th- those people had experienced the destruction and darkness that's a result of warfare. Now, in the biblical understanding, that's a domino effect of their unbelief. But nonetheless, they had walked through darkness. And in fact, at the time that Isaiah is ministering, that darkness is kind of the present circumstance. That's the reality that they're dealing with. And so he says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the, gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Watch verse 2. Okay, But in the future, excuse me, end of verse 1, but in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. Okay, there's three titles there for spots in the land of the north. The way of the sea, the land of the east of the Jordan, and the Galilee of the nations. Did you know that when the Assyrians conquered this land, 734 to 732, they divided it up into, guess what, three administrative districts. And the three districts the Assyrians divided up with match exactly these three descriptions. So Isaiah is talking to people who have, been, who have been conquered. And the darkness of lost loved ones in war, that's there. The darkness of an economy destroyed, that's there. The darkness of maybe being driven out of their homes, that's there. The, the darkness of despair and wondering, is there any way this could get better? Is there any way any good can come out of this? That's there. And he says, yes, I understand that's the situation. Before we get to verse 2, I just want to, again, call you to bring your darkness to the table this morning. Maybe, that, maybe you're there. Maybe you're like in that moment of despair this morning where you're just thinking, I can't. I don't, I just can't. I don't see it. Watch verse 2. Nevertheless, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Now, in Isaiah's time, it was hard to see what he was talking about. Because there wasn't a ton of recovery there that happened. Another 12 years later, and the, the rest of the northern kingdom is also destroyed, and the whole northern kingdom ceases to exist, taken into exile. And so really these words, they anticipate a future time, and that's made clear in verse 1 that in the future this is going to happen. But it's like, well, when? When are these people walking in darkness going to see a great light? When is light dawned on those living in the land of darkness, specifically in the land of Galilee? And wouldn't you know it, the disciple Matthew, as he was walking with Jesus, following Jesus, hearing Jesus teach, watching Jesus heal, as the disciple Matthew right, walked with, with Jesus in his ministry all the way up to the point of the cross and then to the empty grave, he thought back on Isaiah 9 and he said, you know what? People need to know that the, the, the region of Galilee, as prophesied in Isaiah 9, they were stuck in darkness for so long and yet... It was there that Jesus walked and talked, primarily. It was in the tribal neighborhoods of Zebulun and Naphtali that Jesus did most of his preaching and teaching and healing. Not all, but most. And so Matthew actually quotes Isaiah 9-2 in Matthew chapter 4 when he just summarizes Jesus did a ton of his ministry in Galilee because the people walking in darkness did see a great light. They were the ones who got to experience most of Jesus's ministry in his first advent. Again, a light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. It was over 700 years later, but it happened. They they saw the light of the world. 
In verse 3, Isaiah describes the, the, the blessing, what happens, the joy. He says, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. Now, just again, to remind you, because of the Assyrian threat during the 8th century, the nation was not enlarging, it was shrinking, right? The soldiers were dying and the people were being taken in exile and, and the nation was shrinking. And so here, Isaiah prophesies that one of the things the Messiah is going to do is make the nation bigger, means, which means he's going to bless the, the people of Israel who actually trust in the Lord. What, what Isaiah didn't have a full understanding of, and what only became clear later, was that the Messiah would do that by actually offering salvation not merely to believing Jews, but to Gentiles as well. So the nation got real big. And we read about that in the book of Acts. He enlarged the nation. And when he enlarged the nation, instead of it being a circumstance of mourning, as when the Assyrian army rolled through, this now was a, a circumstance for people to rejoice. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. If you're honest about the darkness that you're facing, the thing is you want joy. You, you want resolution. You want that. And so here Isaiah says that's happening through the Messiah's ministry. Verse 3 again. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. There are two circumstances here that culturally Isaiah references as examples of time when there was great rejoicing. The first is at the time of harvest, okay? Because most of us aren't, don't live in an agricultural, uh, agricultural economy. Some of us in Sussex County do, praise the Lord, okay? Yeah, but... Most of us don't. So in an agricultural economy, when the harvest actually comes in, that's when all the work pays off and you know you're good. You know you've got the food for the winter. You know you've got the food to sell. You're good, right? And so they rejoice when there's a big harvest. And Isaiah says that's what the ministry of the Messiah will do. We'll enlarge the nation and bring joy just like a massive harvest. I was trying to think of a, an example of when that might happen for us. It's like, you know, maybe when uh, you get an unexpected tax, you know, refund, like, like, wow, like what a blessing that is, right? And so it's like, yeah, that is, there's rejoicing. Of course, it's infinitely greater than that, right? But just, you know, the, the time of harvest. Okay, that's an example. Or when they're plundering their enemies, when they're taking their spoil. Well, think about it this way. This is it's college football season. So when your favorite team beats the, their arch-rival enemy, there's that celebration that happens, and they storm the field. And Isaiah's like, it's that kind of joy, that celebration, that anticipation that comes to fruition when like, the, finally they blow the whistle and the game is over and your team is won. He says, this is what the people in darkness will experience. Yes, now you might be experiencing despair. Yes, now you might be experiencing hurt and sorrow. But that is not the end of the story. The people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Galilee saw some hard days. But they also saw the best days. Because it was there that Jesus walked and talked. It's there that Jesus healed. They were the first ones to, to hear the message, repent and believe the good news. You see, the light destroys darkness. The light destroys darkness. Just in case we miss the connection, in John chapter 1, verse 5, we read that that light, the light that Jesus is, that light has come into the world and the darkness will not overcome it. Jesus is the light of the world. He says that point blank in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. You see, there's this, this recognition here in, in the biblical storyline that, that the only solution ultimately to darkness and despair is the light of the world. It is the Messiah, Jesus. 
And so, yes, we might struggle in the moment, but the fact is our ultimate destiny is joy and celebration. Jesus brings joy, how? By enlarging the nation. Can I tell you, he is still doing that today. He is enlarging the nation today. As sinners become followers of Jesus and are washed clean, that's enlarging the nation. And, you know, sometimes we might get distracted or discouraged in in suffering, and we might feel like, oh, you know, all these bad things keep happening to me and or to us. And so maybe we don't deserve membership in the kingdom. And maybe God finally figured that out and he's kicking me out, right? But that's faulty thinking because nobody actually deserves membership in the kingdom. But God, because of his grace, offers it to us anyway. So maybe you're struggling. You're thinking, I don't belong. Well, join the club. I don't belong either. But those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And God is enlarging the nation. Or maybe you might feel like you'll never find relief and rest. I guarantee you the people in Galilee thought that at certain times. That there is, there is no relief coming. And you know what? For many of them, they didn't live to see it. It was promised. But they were left in that moment where they had to look to God with hope. And for some of us, that's exactly what, where we are. I mean, we have a little bit of a different circumstance because the Messiah has come. But nonetheless, we're still living in the already, not yet. And so we still have, yes, already the Messiah has come, but we're still struggling with darkness a little. And so we have this opportunity to look to God in faith. And remember, that's Isaiah's whole message here to Ahaz. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in Assyria. Stop trusting in the mediums and whatever else. Trust God. Why? Because the light destroys darkness. There is relief for us in the light of the world. What else should we do in light of these first three verses? Well, don't allow despair and discouragement to dictate terms in your life. Listen, it's a fact that we're going to deal with darkness. We must. It's just, it's just a fact, right? But don't let darkness, don't let despair because of darkness, don't let discouragement dictate terms to you. You know what that looks like, right? That looks like accepting this false truth, this lie, right? This false teaching that says there is no hope for you. When you accept that, you're letting despair and darkness dictate terms. You don't, we don't accept that lie of, of, of the devil that there's no hope. Despair and discouragement might be dictating terms to you in such a way that it results in a complaining spirit. Where all, all you have is a negative outlook. And it's always complaining, always complaining, always complaining. That's a byproduct of self-focus, right? Where you're not looking at the bigger picture. And sometimes that's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to just focus on you. And oh, woe is me. This is happening. That is happening. Oh, woe is me. I'm hurting. And, and the, the, the truth is you are hurting. There, there is darkness there. But you can't let that darkness dictate terms. That's not the only thing going on. Again, these people in Galilee, they saw so much destruction and hurt and sorrow but Isaiah's like but man it, those are the tribes that got to see the light first the light destroys darkness again despair and discouragement might be dictating terms to you and resulting in lack of prayer one of the signs that we're not trusting in the Lord is that we're not going to him in prayer related to that might be a refusal to accept God's help or the help that God sends through someone else or it might be a refusal to ask for help when we need it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just plain old stubbornness, right? Where it's like, 
we have this focus on our suffering, our, our struggle, and yet here we have opportunities to help, and we say, you know what, I don't want, I don't want your help, or I don't want anybody to know that I'm suffering. I don't, I'm, not, I'm gonna cut off the life supply line here. You know, I'm gonna cut, cut off that supply. Again, letting despair and discouragement dictate terms. Or maybe your attitude with God is, it's your way or the highway. Like, you're never good with God unless you get what you want. That, that's a dangerous place to be. And it's not just a toddler's worldview, okay? I mean, it's, we all struggle with that. Where we have things that we want, and we tell, we tell God, maybe sometimes in prayer we say it a little boldly, maybe we don't, we just kind of have it in our attitude. But it's like, God, listen, you got to get, get your act together and get this stuff sorted out. This is how I want it to be. That's a long way from your will be done, right? The light destroys darkness. We, we don't have to, and we're not called to, live in that despair and discouragement. There's a response, right? There is a real joy that comes from the work of the Messiah, who is the light of the world. That title for Jesus has so much uh, power in it because the darkness is so dark. So because the darkness is so dark, it's like, wow, those people that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. The Messiah did come. So how, why is this joy actually available to us? Well, watch verse 4 as he goes through and gives some reasons. There's actually three reasons, verses 4 through 7, why this joy is available, available to us. The first reason is in verse 4. For because you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, and the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. So here Isaiah says, he says, that the people are like an ox, okay? Classic Christmas image, I know, right? <laughs> it's not? Oh, that's weird. Anyway, okay. Get some ox ornaments, people. What are you doing? All right, anyway. So he, he imagines the people are like an ox, and the ox has the burden right? On its shoulders. It has to pull that heavy machinery to do the work, the, the iron to do the work of plowing. And so, and the ox is beaten with the rod to make it go, right? And, and so there, there's this rod on the shoulders, there's a yoke there, and then there's the staff of the oppressor beating them. And what does Isaiah say the Messiah will do? He says, for because, right, for or because you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of, of their oppressor. The Messiah alleviates the burdens. The light alleviates the burden. So it's such a powerful image here. And he says, just like on the day of Midian. What is he talking about, the day of Midian? This is in Judges, okay? Judges, mostly six and seven. During a time when Israel was in major rebellion against God. And guess what? God saved them anyway. Are we catching a theme here yet? Anyway, with Midian, there was a judge, a uh, leader for Israel, Gideon. He was okay. Not the best, not the worst, all right? But Gideon's job was to lead the people and lead this army. But God wanted it to be very clear that he was the one giving the victory. So you know what he did to Gideon's army, if you remember the story or the flannel graph. But, you know, he, he kind of shrinks down the army. So the Midianites were there against, guess where this was, by the way? This was in Galilee. The Midianites were there, camped with all their soldiers. And, and Gideon shows up with his 300, you know, guys. And frankly, they weren't that strong. They didn't look that good. And so here's Gideon with this small army, and they weren't even going to attack. They were just supposed to go blow trumpets, smash jars, and yell. Like, that was the strategy, right? Like, that's going to work. But God wanted to prove a point there in Galilee. He wanted to prove a point that he could provide victory with barely any army and without even them using their swords. And so they did what God told them to do. They broke the jars. They, they blew the trumpets. They yelled. 
with the torches. What did God do? God provided deliverance. And so the day of Midian was the day of God bringing deliverance to God's people in Galilee, right? Reminding them that he can do what they think is impossible. That he can provide victory when all they can see is defeat. And he does it in such a way that he gets the glory. The burden was broken. The rod of the oppressor was shattered. There was relief given. Watch verse 5, continuing the same imagery. It says, for every, a second reason here, for because every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. The word for boot here is a specific word for the Assyrian war boot, which went up to right below the knee, okay? This is like fashion-specific terminology here. Why? Why? Who cares about the Assyrian war boot? Because the Assyrians were the one that destroyed Galilee, And the prophet says, those Assyrian boots will be burned. All those garments that were bloodied in in that warfare, they will be burned. That's the relief. Victory is coming through the Messiah. Relief is coming through the Messiah. Peace and rest is coming through the Messiah. Why? Because the light alleviates burdens. The light removes or alleviates burdens. Our desire for justice is good, but often we're looking for justice in the wrong places. For Isaiah, he says, it's good that you want peace, that you want uh, a, right, you know, a right resolution to the problem. It's good that you want vindication for what's wrong. Those are good desires, but be careful where you're looking for peace and righteousness. Be careful where you're looking for that burden to be relieved. If you're looking to yourself to do it, it's not going to work. I give you Batman. I'm, that's the lesson of Batman. You say, Pastor Ryan, why do they keep making Batman movies? Because when you take it upon yourself, no matter how much money you have, if you take it upon yourself to execute justice, it never ends well. There's never been the end of a Batman movie where you were like, oh, that feels so good. It's like, there's like that's, that's, I don't know what that is. It's not justice, you know. There are no happy endings in Batman. Because when you're trying to make it all right yourself, you're trying to do something that you can't do. Maybe you're not looking to yourself. Maybe you're looking to the courts or the government to do it. Listen, it is a blessing when a court renders a verdict that is just and good, but it is by no means guaranteed living in a broken world. And you just got to know that governments fail. And judges sometimes make bad decisions. And in really bad days, sometimes judges make bad decisions for money. And that's the world we live in. So you, can't, you, you just got to temper your desire to say, oh, the government's going to fix. If we just had the right politicians in place, that will fix everything. Well, kind of, but hold on to that. Not, not really, not the way we would think of it. You can't do it in a vote. You can't solve the problem of darkness in a vote. You can't solve the problem of darkness with a, a Supreme Court verdict. But man, it would be nice to have no burdens, wouldn't it? It would be nice to have no blows, to never be attacked. Most of our attacks aren't physical, they're emotional, maybe verbal, where people lash out at others. And I know, how, I know how far back in English that little ditty goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I know that ditty goes back a long way, but it's always been false. Our oppression is not probably going to come through physical oppression. Sometimes it does in our broken world, and that's terrible. But think about it. Isaiah says, here's the picture. No tyrants, no blows, no, no burdens. 
It's all, the, the, the yoke is shattered. The rod of the oppressor is shattered. Finally, you'll get what you're looking for, peace and rest. No more bullies getting away with it. No more bosses taking advantage of their employees, right? No more uh, government oppression. No more faulty decisions in the courts. No more families abusing other people in the family. No, no, more, no more tragedy in the news. And I can't help but just run to, again, the book of Matthew, in Matthew 11, verse 28, where Jesus said, Jesus, the light of the world, said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Isaiah is 700 years before Jesus comes, but Isaiah is looking forward, and, and the Spirit of God gives him this picture of what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to break the burdens. He's going to alleviate the heaviness of the darkness. He's going to give us rest. Now, some of that is experienced in the here and now. Praise God. There's a difference. There's a difference in how you navigate the darkness before you come to faith in Jesus and after you come to faith in Jesus. But we also know that we look forward to the ultimate removal of all sin, of all the darkness. And that hasn't happened yet. So we are still in that already, not yet. But here, nonetheless, Jesus says, come to me and I will actually give you rest. If you're here this morning and the darkness seems to be overwhelming you, if you're really struggling, I just want to encourage you with the words of Jesus. Come to him. He can do what no one else can do because he is the light of the world. Because he is the promised rescuer. He's the one that can provide that forgiveness that we need. There's hope now. There's real hope now. And that hope is because of the ultimate relief to come. And if there's any lesson to be learned from Midian, it's don't rely on man-made help. I mean, it's just, it's so easy to get tempted, to be tempted to think the way the world thinks. And, oh, we can solve our problems if I just had the right counselor, if I just had the right amount of money in the bank, if I just had the right education, if I just had the right house, if I just had the right whatever, then then my problems will be solved. But those are man-made solutions, and they can't, they can't get it done. And if you try to solve darkness through those solutions, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Only the light can alleviate our burdens. Now listen, maybe you're sitting here, and we're looking at this, and, and maybe even if I lived in Galilee, like 731, right after a series rolled through, I might be thinking, whatever. Like, this is too good to be true. Like, there's no way. Like, you know, what you're talking about, this idea of even in the midst of darkness, having hope and joy and, and peace, like, that's not real. That, that can't actually happen. Okay, I live in the real world, okay? In the real world, you have to pay the toll when you go through the toll thing. Like, that's how it works. Like, there's no easy outs. There's no shortcut here. And it's not a shortcut, but we haven't gotten to the third reason yet. Watch verse 6. Four, because, so three reasons, right? Uh, we should rejoice. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. For every trampling boot of, of battle will be burned. And then verse 6, four... A child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. You just got to pause here again. So Isaiah focuses Israel's hope in God on the coming of a child. Right? Listen, he says, I know you don't see it. Ahaz didn't see it. But listen. Listen. There will be a child that will get it done. 
Not just a child that's assigned to trust in God, but a child that will actually get it done. This is where the prophetic message kind of gets blown up because you're like, oh yeah, Isaiah, there was a child and Ahaz saw the child and that actually happened. Ahaz did see a child that was a reminder for him to trust God and he didn't trust God anyway. So that, that certainly happened, but it wasn't as much as what he had described. And so here in chapter nine, we get to this, uh, the child coming and it's like, there's a child that's going to be born for us. That language is intentional for us. There, there's a child that will, be, that will be born to accomplish something for you. A child will be given to you, right? A child will, will be given to us to help us to, to solve the problems that we're facing. And it, it just seems like there's no way. There's no way a child could do this. Notice what he says about the child, and it, it's intentionally uh, supposed to be like ludicrous. Like, what? This is not going to work. Verse 6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. The word for government there, maybe I prefer the word authority. So don't think administration here. Think authority. Think legitimate right to rule, okay? The legitimate right to rule will be on his shoulders, You had the oppressive yoke on your shoulders. That yoke will be broken by the one who can actually bear the burden of leadership. So there's definitely a play on words here. So this child is going to have authority on his shoulders. And then what will he he be called? There's, of course, a ton of symbolic names in Isaiah 7 through 9. But man, these names just get bigger and bigger. Listen to what he says. The, The child will be called. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. If you're reading the King James Version, they've got those as two separate titles. That's not right. It should be one title there, Wonderful Counselor. Those two terms go together. The, the term wonderful here, now just, this is, okay, this is pretty cool. The term wonderful here is specifically used in many places in the Old Testament for the miracle working acts of God, specifically in the Exodus. Exodus 15, I'm thinking it's 22, but 15, 22. Uh, this word is used to describe those signs, those miracles that God performed through Moses and Aaron to prove his, his superiority to the Egyptian gods and goddesses. So it, it's not just like, like wonderful. Listen, we've all seen It's a Wonderful Life too many times, right? Like, like wonderful in our you know, uh, use of that term in English, it's just like, oh yeah, like it's great. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. It's, no, like this is like wonderful, like wonder working, wonderful wonderful counselor. This is not a psychiatrist or a therapist. The term here is war counselor, okay? So when it's going down in your life, and you're having to make decisions, and you're like, who should I turn to? How about the miracle-working war counselor? How about that guy? Except he's not a guy. He's a child. What? The child will be called wonderful counselor, the one who works miracles, and the one on whom you can rely when push comes to shove in your war room. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. <laughs> okay. So the ancient Near Eastern cultures had this idea that the kings of the nations fought as representatives of the gods of their nations, you know, like there's this whole mythological uh, Canaanite, you know, thinking, way of thinking. So it's like the king goes to war. It's like he's the mighty God fighting for us. Whatever. Listen, Isaiah says, no, no, no. The child actually will be mighty God. Not like, oh, it's a, he's like metaphorically fighting God for us. No, this is actually God who is mighty and fighting for you. Eternal Father. This is not to confuse the Son 
with the Father, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. This is not to confuse that. This terminology refers to the protective work of God on our behalf. And it's the Messiah who gets that done. It's the Son who gets that done. So the Son is the protection for us. And in that language, he uses, in the, the context there, he uses that, that, that picture, that statement, eternal Father, the everlasting protector. That's who Jesus is as the light of the world. We're all looking for protection. The question is just, can you, can you get protection that lasts long enough? Fourth, the prince of peace. Not the prince who is peaceful, the prince who brings peace through his victory and leadership. Again, we're, we, you got to think about these titles. They're, war-like, they're wartime titles here. Jesus, the son, this child born for us, the son given to us, that son, he will accomplish peace through his victory. Well, how, how's the child going to get it done? Listen, for Ahaz, he's like, I'm going to trust in Assyria. They're going to save. And Isaiah says, trust God. He's going to send a kid to do it. And it was, it, he was confronting, it, was, it seems absurd because he's confronting the unbelief. But don't you know that we need that same confrontation? Because we're like, oh, the money's going to fix the problem. Oh, you know, the, if I just had this or that, that's going to fix the problem. And the prophet Isaiah would say to us, no, you've got to trust God, which looks ridiculous. Like trusting in a child to give you war counsel. But this is no mere child. You, you need to trust in this child who is for us. It was given to us because of who he is. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince who brings peace. How did Jesus bring peace? Well, many of his followers expected him to come in and wipe out the Romans because they were the problem when Jesus, you know, 700 years after this, when, when Jesus arrives, that the Romans were the problem. So the thought was Jesus is going to get a sword and he's going to be like a great military strategist and he's going to lead this attack and going to wipe out the Romans out of Israel and it's going to solve the problem. And Jesus didn't do that. In fact, he said, you're thinking about it all wrong. The problem's bigger than Rome. The problem's bigger than Rome. The problem's not imported into Israel here. Jesus says the problem is sin. And so Jesus goes to war with sin. How does he go to war with sin? Well, he proclaims the word of God. He teaches the truth, right? And from time to time, he would heal people to show that he actually is more than just a prophet or a man, that he actually is mighty God, right? Walking on earth. And so he would give those little tastes of the future, but he didn't heal everybody. He healed some people. His war with sin takes him ultimately to Jerusalem, where he goes to the cross under false charges And he is publicly executed, having done zero wrong ever in the history of the universe and beyond. He dies for us. That's the prince who makes peace. How did he win? He rose from the dead. And as he conquers sin and death, the offer continues to go out. Trust in me, and you can have peace with God. Trust in me, and I can facilitate peace with others. He is the prince who makes peace. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You will not know peace outside of Christ. But be encouraged that he is the prince who makes peace. And he can make peace for you. It's a simple offer. He simply says, trust me. Stop trusting your church attendance. Stop trusting your good deeds. Stop trusting your bank account. 
Stop trusting your, your job performance. Stop trusting your grades. Jesus says, trust me. And he, what he's done by his death is he's created the possibility for us to have peace with God, even though we're sinners. He paid for our sins. And then an outflowing of that work in us is that we start to experience differences in our relationships with others. And even in an already not yet world, we can experience greater peace in our families. Greater peace at work. Greater peace with your friends that you're struggling with. Greater peace in your neighborhood. He goes on in verse 7 to talk about this reign, the reign of this child. He says the dominion, the authority, right, will be vast. And its prosperity will never end. We have a never-ending range of authority for this child born for us. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. You don't need Batman. We have Jesus. <laughs> all those promises, Second Samuel 7 and beyond, all the failures of the kings and First and Second Kings, finally one will sit on the throne of David and will get it done. How? Verse 7. The very end there. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The passion of God Almighty will get it done. Passion for what? God's passion to show his greatness by saving sinners. Did you know that when the people who walk in darkness see the light... When sinners become saints by faith in Jesus, when that happens, God's greatness is on display. Just like that day of Midian. Nobody, listen, listen, nobody went home after that battle. And they were like, look how awesome we are. Battle strategists that we, they, they went home and all they could say was we won and God did it. Can I encourage you this morning that God is passionate to show his greatness by working in your life? How? The Son is for us. The Son is for us. Listen, in your darkness, you might wonder, is anyone for me? Or you might think it may happen that the people who hurt you are the ones that you thought were for you. Or your situation might be so terrible, it might be so painful that you think no one could be for me and actually get it done. But don't miss Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. The Son is is for us. And he is the miracle working counselor. He is mighty God. God, very God, and man, very man. He is the eternal protector. We need that. And he's the prince who makes peace. I don't don't really, it, it doesn't matter who else could be for you. The son is. And that's what makes the difference. The Son is for us. And it's only in His reign that we will experience true justice and righteousness. And so while we're still walking with a fair amount of darkness in our world, we look forward to that day when the Son's mission is completed. In the meantime, don't lose hope. Have real joy in Jesus. You know, one of the most obnoxious things about Christmas, give me an amen if you agree with this, is that joy is basically forced on you everywhere you go. Like the decorations, they're like, you will be happy. (laughs) The lights, all those lights, you know, it's like, oh, I can't help but be happy. Like what? The music, you go in those, you can go in that store in a bad mood. That music comes on. You're like, oh, there goes Bing Crosby again. Dang it. (laughs) 
getting to me. The food. I'll tell you what. Let me tell you what. You don't know joy until you've had Lindsay's pound cake. I'll tell you what. And it is designed. But it's forced on you. It's forced. It's, it, listen, at the end of the day, it's fake. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's just a facade of holiday cheer. It's behind, what's behind that facade? Oh, greed, materialism, addictions, the reality of abuse, broken relationships, deep-seated selfishness. It's fake. People are walking in darkness, but we don't have to. And don't let your Christmas celebration be fake. Don't let it be something that you get out of a box after Thanksgiving and you put away after New Year. Why? Because the son was born. And he is everything Isaiah said he would be. And maybe most importantly, no matter who else is against you or what circumstances come at you, the son is for you. My friend John Newton, again, he wrote another poem This one was actually inspired by the book of Isaiah. Listen to what he says. He says, Pensive, doubting, fearful heart. Hear what Christ the Savior says. Every word should joy impart. Change thy mourning into praise. Yes, he speaks, and he speaks to thee. May he help thee to believe. Then thou presently will see thou hast little cause to grieve. He was never one to minimize the darkness, John Newton. But he knew that wasn't the end of the story. He knew that when we hear the words of Jesus calling us to trust in him, those words give us real lasting joy and reveal that we actually have little cause to grieve. Why? Because the child was born for us. Would you pray with me? And we'll ask God to help us have that joy even right now. Lord, we thank you for these uh, words in Isaiah 9. Lord, words uh, written so long before your incarnation, and yet words that help us understand the purpose and the reason for your coming. Lord, we thank you that you are trustworthy We thank you that your zeal to show your greatness by rescuing sinners motivates you to act. And Lord, we thank you that you've acted for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that you are the Son. You are the miracle-working, wonderful counselor. You are mighty God who took on flesh for us. You provide protection as our eternal Father. And Lord Jesus, you are the Prince who makes peace. Lord, we ask that you would help us to believe that. Especially as we struggle, Lord. I I pray for those who are just walking through the darkness right now. Especially, Lord, perhaps because of circumstances that are happening to them. It's not their fault. They're just experiencing sickness. They're experiencing financial difficulty. They're experiencing emotional hurt and pain. Lord, I, I pray that they would see you as the light of the world. They would find true joy and genuine encouragement in who you are and what you've done for us. And that there would be true hope looking forward to what you will do when you return. Lord, I also pray for those of us walking in darkness because of our own sin. Because we've made sinful choices. We've harbored sinful attitudes. We have participated 
in sinful actions. We've spouted off sinful words. Lord, we praise you that when we look to you, we find not condemnation, but we find grace and mercy. Because you are the prince who does make a way for peace. Lord, we ask that you would help us to say no to temptation, not in some kind of uh, vain effort to please you, but instead, Lord, because of what you've already done for us in Christ. And Lord, I pray for those for whom uh, Christmas celebration is a tough time of year. And they, they would struggle with mourning lost loved ones and struggle with difficult circumstances in their life and their families. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of that very real hurt, they would indeed find eternal joy and hope in you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the child who was born for us. We thank you that you died for us and that you rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven and find mercy and grace. Lord, help us to leave in encouragement and in faith now. We pray these things in your name. Amen.